0: Good morning ladies thank you so much for the timely movie um, music would you um, would you pray with me Father I I praise you that you have delivered us from fear I praise you for that and I, I agree with the songs that were sung that that I ask that you might heal our land And Father just uh, come upon this place and bring us understanding to a hard topic. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was born and raised in Butler, Pennsylvania. That's just a little north of Pittsburgh. Until, um, and lived there with my whole extended family until about six weeks after the birth of my daughter. And then my husband was transferred to a little town known as Hurricane West Virginia. And we enjoyed it there, and we were there for about five years when one day my husband showed up at the front door. Someone had dropped him off. He showed up at the front door and said, ''I have been fired.'' The um, boss, the boss's son, had accused him of stealing. He was in the crane and construction business, and he quickly learned what a close-knit community that was, and that people quit returning your calls. When they think you're a thief. He had been required to sign a non-compete agreement when he was first hired, and so that was going to severely limit where we went to look for a job and what kind of work he could be in. And to make matters worse, it turns out that you can't collect unemployment if your husband has been accused of stealing. It was a very dark and confusing time. That went on for a couple of months, and then finally the owner called my husband up and said, I want to hire you back, but I'm going to put you in a territory that my son is not in charge of. I'm going to send you to the south. So he moved to Columbia, South Carolina, while I stayed in West Virginia with the kids. And that went on for a couple of weeks. And then we decided, okay, it's time to go look for a house. And so we made plans to go to um, Columbia, and as we were literally walking out the door, the Um, owner calls and says don't buy a house in Columbia I'm not sure that's where you're going and so we continued to live me in West Virginia him in South Carolina and then eventually after several months he landed in Charlotte so we thought aha now's the time that's where we're going we'll put the house up for sale surely that will sell right away well it didn't sell right away and so he continued we continued to live in separate states and throughout the whole thing, I did not handle it well. I, I, would, I would feel bad about that. I would think, you know, people deal with so much worse than this. Why is this just really flattening me? I suspect it's because there were a lot of unanswered questions. There was a lot of waiting. Things didn't make sense. Things didn't seem fair. If someone had said to me at the forefront, okay, Heidi, just relax. This is gonna all be over in about 15 months. And you're going to land in Concord, North Carolina, and you're going to love it there, and your kids are going to love it there. In fact, they're going to meet all three of their spouses and live there. You have an appointment with three spouses. And all those men that plotted against your husband, that's going to be corrected. And the owner's son, he's gone to jail. And your husband's good name will be fully restored. But I didn't know any of that. And so I stressed and I worried. At the time, I thought I was having to move and uproot my family because the boss's son had it in for my husband. I thought he was to blame. I thought he was the reason my life was being completely turned upside down. Let me ask you, what do you do when you are in the middle of something that looks unfair? When it looks like this terrible person is controlling the direction of your lives or your children's lives? When you're having to suffer or be inconvenienced because of something someone else has done? (coughs) What do you do when you're overlooked or you're passed over, and that is affecting your life? What are you to think? Can you trust God when you are in the middle of something confusing and he does not give you all the answers that you crave? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. We're going to back up a little bit. Esther chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8 says this. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women, woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman women to the best place in the harem. Okay, if you remember, we said our very first week together that the book of Esther was primarily about the sovereignty and providence of God. If you are wanting to study that topic, Esther and the book of Ruth, okay, so the two books that have the names of women, those are great books to study on this topic. And so this morning, we are finally going to try to dig in a little bit to that. Now, before we do, I um, want to say something. Um, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, is, is a difficult topic in the Christian faith. And particularly now, when, when you l- listen to the news and you see what's going on in the world. Okay, so it's, it's a difficult topic. So I want us to think of it as like an onion. And we're just going to peel back a layer every week. All right, We're not going to answer all of our questions one week, but we're just going to try to peel back a layer. And this is a topic with a lot of layers. Okay. So to get us started, let's start with some definitions. And I have these on your paper. The definition for sovereignty. When we talk about sovereignty, what do we mean? Well, this is number one. God's sovereignty is his absolute rule and control over all of the events and circumstances of his creation. His rule and control. All right, in the word sovereignty, you can see the word reign. All right, now as Americans, we've never had a sovereign. We've never had a king. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because we don't know how that works as well. But nonetheless, the sovereignty of God has to do with the fact that he reigns. Okay, he is supreme ruler. He doesn't have a boss. He doesn't need to get permission. Okay? He is the absolute ruler over all creation. He's he's ruling and he's in control. All right. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate about that, about this doctrine. Some people will say that God is sovereign, but that he is distant and passive. Yes, he's on the throne, but he's more like a referee. Okay, and he just interjects himself into the game as he sees fit. Or, you know, especially if somebody prays. You know, then, then he might move and take action. But most of the time, he's letting the players play the game for themselves. All right, now, there's an actual name for that type of thinking, and I have this on your paper. It's number two. It is called deism, D-E-I-S-M. And it is the belief in the existence of a supreme being specifically of a creator who, do, who does not intervene in the universe, all right? Uh, a deist likens God to a watchmaker, okay? They say God is the great watchmaker. And you know a watchmaker, he makes the watch, he winds it up, and then he lets it play out by himself, all right? That's the way the deist would see. A deist would say that God has a very hands-off approach when it comes to running the world, Right now, I wanted to start with that because it's going to be the exact opposite of our next definition and and what we're really going to park on today. And that is the word providence. And I have this on your paper. In English, number three, in English it is from the word provide. That English word is made up of two Latin words. Pro, meaning forward or on behalf of, and vide, that's Latin, to see. You get the words video and things like that from that. At first, you might think that that means that God is able to see in the future, to see forward. All right, But it it doesn't. It means more. And I have this on your handout as well. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support. You see, the word see can mean more than just vision. All right, now, let's say that before class, I I asked you, could you see to it that all the women get a handout this morning? Now, would I be telling you, listen, I want you to stand off to the side and use your eyes to watch and see as all the girls get their papers? No. It would mean that I'm asking you to have a very active role in making sure that everybody has a handout, okay? So, that brings us to our next definition, and this is from Jerry Bridges. Number four, We're talking about providence now. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. All right, so we're distinguishing now a little between sovereignty and providence. Providence has to do with constant care and absolute rule. And I want you to notice the two objectives or the two purposes. It says, for his own glory, and if you remember, we talked about this in week two, okay? For his own glory, and then secondly, for the good of his people. I would underline, or circle both of those. For his own glory, for the good of his people. And what you're going to see is these two will always be in harmony. Okay? Now, I also want you to notice he's making a distinction about the people. He says, for his people. I'd underline that. We're talking God's people. We're talking people that have a saving, believing covenant relationship with God. Okay, people that are called according to his purpose. All right. So we've got sovereignty. We learned that he is ruling actively over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Now, what will that look like? Well, Esther is going to be a wealth of information to show us what that will look like. And so let's do a little recap, and then we're going to dig into our lesson this week. Last week, we talked about how all the women were gathered up for the beauty contest. And Esther is among one of those taken. We talked about all the beauty treatments that they had. In verse 9, we learned that she won his favor. She won the eunuch's favor. And apparently, she's put on the fast track. She has moved to the front of the line, uh, so to speak. Now, one writer claims that he finds favor. He looks upon her with favor because he looks at her and says, oh yeah, the king is going to like this one. And so he wants to back the winning girl, and so he puts um, all of his weight behind her. Who knows? In any event, he's pouring all of his energy into Esther. All right, verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. All right, now I want you to remember, if you were Jewish, if you followed the Jewish law, it would have made you distinct from the Gentiles, or in this case, the Persians. You had foods you didn't eat. You had cleansing rituals. You had very distinct practices that would have made you um, stand apart from the other people. So when she's being told not to make known her people, she's basically being told, okay, listen, you need to blend in. You need to eat what they eat. You need to do what they do. Don't talk about God. All right, now, again, as you can imagine, all kinds of speculation as to why he tells her to do this. All right, on one side of the argument, you have people that say that he wants her to win the crown, so shh, her Jewishness could be problematic. So let's keep that a secret. And then on the other side, you say, well, he fears for her life. You know, in the same way that you wouldn't brag to Hitler that your daughter was Jewish. You don't want the people at the palace to know that she is Jewish. Okay, either way, um, ag- again, this is one of those places in the book of Esther where we're not given the moral explanation. It's not detailed for us. Okay, that's review. Let's um, move on to verse 15. When the turn, verse 15, chapter 2, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, Abihail the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Okay, Esther is the Princess Diana of the group. Okay, she's winning favor in the eyes of all who see her. Everyone she comes in contact with, she's, she's finding favor in their eyes. Now this is significant. Because the atmosphere would have been very competitive. Okay, remember, the prize is that you marry the king of the great and mighty Persian kingdom. Okay, and the losers go and they spend their lives in confinement. We talked a little bit about this last week. I've never seen the show, but the creator of The Bachelor was asked if the contestants get along. Behind the scenes, is there a lot of camaraderie? And he said, a lot depends on the circumstances and how much is of a catch the bachelor is. When the man is sincerely looking for a wife, then it's sort of every woman for herself. Okay, well, in the book of Esther, the bachelor is the king of the Persian Empire, and he is sincerely looking for a wife. And so knowing that... Um, Human nature hasn't really changed all that much. We can assume that there was rivalry and envy going on between the ladies, and yet we're told that Esther is finding favor with everyone she meets. Okay, that's a God thing. All right, we are also told that when it is her time to see the king, it arrives. She asked for nothing except what Haggai advised. All right, now that's a very wise thing to do because uh, this ain't his first rodeo, and. Uh, One teacher actually gives a more x-rated teaching on the passage and says that she is basically asking him, okay, sexually, erotically, you know what this guy likes. So what should I take with me? Okay, now, um, who knows whether it was that sexual or not, but um, look at verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the crown, royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right, this is a celebration. Esther has won the contest. And we're told that the king loved her more than all of the women, so he picks her to be queen. And then notice what they do. This is the book of Esther. What do they do? They have another feast. Okay, And it says that this is Esther's feast, and the king, he's granting a time of forgiveness. Uh, He's giving them a tax break. He's giving royal gifts. Um, This is the kind of feast you would want. All right, Esther is made queen. We're told he loves her more than all the women, but apparently not enough to be monogamous. Look at verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. All right, once again, we're learning the king is adding to his harem. You know, harem's aged. Those ladies got old. He probably needed to bring in some younger uh, women. And um, this time, we're told that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, and that can be an expression to mean that he is holding some type of official position at the court. Okay, that's some kind of civic, um, civic position. All right, we're also reminded again that once again, even though Esther is queen, she still has not revealed that she's Jewish. All right, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Mordecai, he learns of an assassination plot, and we're not told how, but it's giving us a taste of the loyalty of of Mordecai, okay? We're going to want to remember that. He just happens to get a job at the king's gate, and it just so happens, he just so happens to hear that two of the king's eunuch are planning to kill the king, all right? Now, this is no big surprise that somebody would want to try to kill this king, All right, history will tell us that he will go on to be assassinated in his own bed in 465 BC. But what is surprising is that Mordecai finds out, he reports it to the queen, and Mordecai is not rewarded. Okay, notice it even says that the affair was investigated and found to be true. Two men are hanged and the whole thing is recorded in the presence of the king. Typically, Persian kings rewarded loyalty immediately and generously. You know, you wanted to be very good to the people that had your back, okay? So the author is describing a very obvious situation in which Mordecai should have been rewarded, but there's nothing, okay? He does something very loyal, does something very helpful, perhaps even risky, Okay? And yet and yet there's there's no there's no pat on the back, there's no promotion, nothing. Nada. Zip. <clears throat> and that is setting us up for the next verse. Right? Esther chapter 3, verse 1 says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were there with him, who were with him. All right, just as the reader is expecting Mordecai to get promoted, this new guy shows up out of nowhere, and he gets a promotion. All right, we're told exactly what Mordecai did to deserve the praise and honor and recognition, but this guy, all the details are left out. All right, all we're told is what, um, we're not told what he did, we're just told that the king puts his throne above all the others. All right, verse 2, and all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. All right. All kinds of reasons for why Mordecai does not bow down to Haman. All right, um, on one, you have one side, they want to make him a role model. And they say that, well, he's being required to worship Haman. And he's a good Jew, and he only worships God, so that's why he doesn't bow down. Okay, then you have the flip side saying, hey, wait a minute, not so fast. He didn't have a problem bowing down to the king, What's being required of Mordecai is just basic respect to the people around the palace, and he's not bowing down. Nothing worshipful is being required of him, just basic uh, respect. So you have both sides um, uh, debating on that one. And again, this is just another one of those ambiguous statements in Esther that we're not really told. Now, the author doesn't tell us because it doesn't matter. All right, what matters is what happens next, and that is that it is the reason it prompted Haman to seek to destroy the Jews. Okay. Now, this is probably a good time to talk about how, how um, the author labels Haman. All right. All throughout, Haman is called Haman the Agagite, and the author will use that five times. Now, if If I started uh, this uh, lesson out telling you I was from Butler, Pennsylvania. Now, if I managed to work that into the conversation four more times, you'd probably say, "Mm, yeah, I'm thinking she wants me to know she's from Butler, Pennsylvania. Okay, very, very similar thing going on here. Okay, the author wants the readers to know he's an agagite. Haman the agagite. This guy's an agagite. Okay, he'll do it five times. Now, the original readers would be going, oh, yeah, okay, this makes sense. Okay, the original readers likely understood all that. Um, Us, maybe not so much. Your book had some insights on it, and I have a, a little box on your paper about it. It's generally understood that Haman is a descendant of King Agag. King Agag was an Amalekite. And, and the Amalekites in the Old Testament are very interesting people because they're always showing up out of nowhere attacking the Israelites, and so God had God had instructed God had set these people apart for destruction because of the way they treated the Jews. All right, over and over again, what you'll see is God will instruct the Jews to do something. He'll he'll give a command on 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 something that they are to do. And then the Jews will begin to obey it. And just as they do, all of a sudden you'll have Amalekites coming out of nowhere and they're trying to attack and battle the Jews. Now think about it. Who are they really battling? Their their fight is against God, is it not? Okay, and so God, as we said, God will tell them that these are people that are to be set apart for destruction. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. And a little side note here, Um, sometimes people will teach that the Amalekites are really a picture of the flesh, our flesh, the way our our enemy, the flesh, and how we battle that. So that's something you can kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, For now, important thing that we want to understand is the Jews have a history with the Agagites, and it ain't good. Okay, they're enemies. All right, let's look at verse 7. Esther 3, verse 7 says this. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. All right, first of all, let's notice the um, mention of time. It's been about five years since Esther has been made queen, and Haman decides he wants to kill the Jews. Now, Now he's going to decide when. All right. He may have wanted to kill them immediately, but he's a superstitious guy, and he wants to have the favor of his gods, and so he's going to cast lots. He's going to do what the astrologers say. Now, one pastor, the way they explain this is rather than him throwing the lots um, for an entire year, they likely would take a calendar and the lots and just work through every day of the year throwing their lots each time, and that's how they would have come up with um, the best day to do things. Now, in this case, they rolled the dice in the first month. It lands on the 12th, right? So he's got 12 months to work out his plan, and that's going to be significant for the Jews as we go on. All right, the date's determined. Now he needs the king's permission. Let's pick up in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. All right, now if you remember from last week, we talked about how the king lost a lot of money when he was battling the Greeks. And so the, the money's enticing. Uh, it's said that they would come to about 60% of his annual budget. And um, no doubt, Haman plans on plundering the Jews as he kills them so that he can make good on the promise of money. So, but basically, Haman tells the king, listen, I'm looking out for you. And there's a group of people, and they're not good for you. They're not loyal. They're not, they're, not, they're not helpful. And so I'm going to take care of them for you, and don't worry. I'm going to cover the cost. All right, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. Do to them as it seems good to you. All right, now, remember, we just read there was this thorough investigation into the assassination plot. All right, but here, there's no investigation. There's not even a follow-up question. Okay, he doesn't even ask who the certain people are. All right, he just hangs over the signet ring and basically says, here, just knock yourself out. Okay, and as for the money, some people think he's giving it back. All right, but he needs the money. All right, so it's probably, what this is probably uh, better translated like, uh, he's probably saying, hey, it's your money, you can spend it how you want. Okay, now verse 12. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Okay, a law is written, and it's in every language And it's sent Pony Express style. They had a very elaborate Pony Express style back then. And it goes out to all 27 provinces, all the different people, the different language groups. And we need to remember that the law of the Persians was irrevocable. Okay? So that means that the full force of the Persian Empire has just come upon the Jewish people. And here's the thing. There's a dirty little trick he did here. He made this, the law instructing the people, instructs the people of the land, not the armies. Right, so it's the people. They're to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, babies, mothers, senior citizens, everybody. Everybody. And here's the incentive. You get to keep their stuff. Okay, they got a nicer house than you. Maybe they're your landlord. Okay, maybe they've got a thriving business. Well, the law says... You get to kill them and keep their stuff, okay? Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Do you remember the videos of the Planned Parenthood doctors as they described the harvesting of baby parts while they sipped on wine and ate their salads. Similar thing going on here. These two have just made a law to exterminate an entire people group, and then they sit down and they share a drink together. Okay, and it says meanwhile, the city is thrown into confusion. Okay. We're going to stop there. There's a lot of good stuff in this chapter about the sovereignty of God. And we're going to try to just zoom on a couple. I have on your paper a verse. It is Proverbs 16.33. And it says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The casting of lots, or the rolling of the dice, is very important. It's a very important part of this story. You might remember that first week, we talked about the Feast of Purim. Well, the, the, uh, and because that's what the book of Esther explains. Well, Purim, Purim, Pur is the Hebrew word for lot. Purim is its um, plural. And so dice and lots have a very big part of this story. Okay, and so here's the next thing on our paper. Number five, God controls the roll of the dice. God controls the roll of the die. So you could also say lots. Now, I've brought a die with me this morning. And I am, I can put it on my hand and I can see the number four. And if I just, boop, that little movement, now I'm looking at the number one. Okay, that tiny little movement, just the, the movement of a face of a die God is sovereign over the seemingly insignificant tiny movements in the world. Something as simple as, you know, the the face of the die moving from one face to another. Here's our next point, because this is going to help us with what it means. Number six, with God, nothing is random or surprising or by chance or by accident. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. If there is one maverick molecule, then God is not God. If there is one maverick molecule, then God is not God. God controls the roll of the dice or the shooting of a bullet. Nothing is taking him by surprise. Nothing is random. Now, why is this so important? Well, to have a God that was otherwise would be pointless, but I'm, I'm going to give you a couple reasons that we're going to focus on today. Here's our next point, number seven. Because we are the creation of a caring and sovereign God, our lives have inherent meaning and purpose. The fact that God is sovereign brings meaning to our lives. Popular day, modern day atheists tell us that there is no meaning, that there is no purpose in life, that you are the product of the natural evolutionary process. Okay, the Bible tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that God controls the roll of the dice and that nothing is random and that nothing is by chance. Which brings us to our next point, number eight. Because God is caring and sovereign Our suffering will not be meaningless or without purpose. Our suffering. Because God is sovereign, our suffering can have meaning and purpose. Timothy Keller talks a lot about this. He explains that anthropologists say that our Western secular culture is the worst culture in the history of the world at helping people face suffering. Our culture, the worst ever. Now, why do you think the reason for that is? Well, because our Western secular culture says there is no meaning in suffering. Our Western culture says it puts the emphasis on the here and now, and enjoying the moment, and it has no place for suffering. It says it's random. All right, but you see, the Bible says that God is sovereign over the roll of the dice. The suffering, the trials, the inconveniences, they are not random. The sovereignty of God gives them meaning and purpose. When my daughter was probably in about the eighth or the ninth grade, The youth was supposed to have a special, semi-formal event. It's one of those times where everybody gets dressed up, and they either had dinner or or prom or some kind of like youth group version of that. And so we went out and to do some shopping and picked out a dress. And of course, it was going to have to be a dress that her father approved of. And then she had two older brothers, and she had to get by both of them as well. And um, but we found one. We found a, a dress that was really cute. It covered all the right places. And she seemed to be genuinely excited about it. And then um, on the night of the party came, most of all the other girls showed up wearing dresses that were showing a lot more skin. They were shorter and strappier and just that kind of thing. And um, she wasn't really surprised about that. But what upset her was the amount of attention and all the compliments that they seemed to be getting from the youth leaders. Um, so she came, the adult youth leaders. So she came home very very downcast, just very discouraged and downcast. She claimed that she had not received one compliment on her outfit, and instead she spent the night listening to hear the leaders fuss and compliment about all the other girls' dresses that were far less modest. I um, don't know exactly what happened. All I know is that my daughter came home feeling very unattractive and very discouraged. And so as she was explaining the evening to me, I tried to give her some godly advice. I said, honey, you were not dressing for them. You were not dressing to please them. You were dressing to please the Lord. He was your audience. Um, That's what I told her. Here's what I was thinking. Oh, man, youth leaders. I mean, seriously, could you not have given the girl one stinky little compliment? I mean, just a little, oh, honey, you look lovely tonight. I mean, seriously, that would have, oh, are you trying? Are you trying to encourage modesty? Because one little thing like that would have made such an impact on the girl. And then, of course, I started barking to God, Lord, Lord, can, can you help me down here? I mean, I am trying. I'm trying to teach her to dress to honor you in her appearance. Can you help a mother out? Let me ask you, What do you do when your child is overlooked? Or your husband? Or say someone else gets the promotion over him and he's clearly more um, deserving. Or what about you? Maybe you're passed over and your good deeds don't get the appreciation or the applause or the attention that you deserve. In fact... Maybe it seems like all the wrong people are being honored and getting ahead. And you're being trampled. And quite frankly, nothing really makes sense. What do you do? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you fire off an email to that coach or that teacher, giving them a piece of your mind, explaining the injustice? Maybe you just skip all that and go straight to Facebook and make your case. Or do you stop to consider that God is sovereign over the throw of the dice, over the seemingly random events of your life, and that maybe that incident is for a purpose that you don't yet understand? Or maybe that incident is a piece of a bigger story, Now, am I saying that you don't act or that you don't do anything at all? No, we're going to actually talk a lot about that in the weeks ahead. But you see here in chapter 2, Mordecai is completely unrewarded. He's unappreciated. He's not only overlooked, but his mortal enemy is promoted. And then that enemy begins to plot against him to kill him and all of his people. And so by chapter 3, things are so dark. It says the whole city is in a state of confusion. The whole city is in a state of chaos. But you see, they don't know that that oversight in chapter 2 is going to be used to completely turn things around in chapter 6. They don't know that the oversight, that the injustice, that the wrong suffered in chapter 2 is going to become a key piece of his story in chapter 6. And by chapter 9, he's going to be exalted beyond his wildest imaginations. But you see, in chapter 2, he doesn't know that. In chapter 3, it's dark. It's a dark place. And he doesn't have all the details. And so I want to close with this one last point. And that's something we want to remember about the providence of God. And that is number nine. With the sovereignty and providence of God, sometimes the things that happen today are really for a future chapter. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, this is a hard thing to take in that you control even the roll of the dice. And I pray that you'll just help us begin to wrap our minds around this. I pray that it'll be something that we find comfort in soon. But until then, Father, I just pray that you're just with all these women as they wrestle through all of this. And Father, we ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.